well, you know, it's just the way it is. Things will always be the same. Hello, I'm Mark Standish, and you're listening to Critical Faith. This podcast is coming to you from the Center for Philosophy, Religion, and Social Ethics at the Institute for Christian Studies. ICS is a graduate school of philosophy in Toronto, where I am a junior member. We're gathering friends and members of our ICS community here on this podcast to talk about all things faith, scholarship, and society, and the many ways those things interact. We hope Critical Faith gives you a bit of a glimpse into the everyday life of ICS. This semester, we've been asking senior members and junior members to continue their discussions outside the classroom, to bring their ideas into conversation with the rest of life. Now that we're all in isolation, I suppose every conversation is outside the classroom, but I digress. My name is Danielle Yet, and today we're back once again, this time remotely, with Bob Sweetman and Gideon Strauss for the final part of our introductory series on reformational philosophy. If you have no idea what reformational philosophy is, or if you're intrigued to hear Gideon and Bob's takes on the tradition, go have a listen to the four previous episodes in this series to catch up with the conversation so far. Now, on with the show. Inspiration can strike at unexpected moments. And for a student, there's nothing quite like the feeling of something clicking of an idea long percolating at the back of your mind, finally rushing to the fore, of connections being forged. So for our first segment, we're asking our new junior members to share some enlivening, entertaining, and challenging moments when they've experienced just such sparks of inspiration. Today's question, is there a particular philosophical framework, text, or idea that has had a lasting existential impact on you? One thing that I've thought a lot about, which, um, so, oh, what's that piece called? It's by um, Hank Hart, the one on compassion, an ethos of compassion. So that, I think it was so helpful because it calls into question um, or like gently critiques some of the like reformed emphasis on law and um, suggests that we move towards an ethos of compassion. And for me, like, I think that the discussion around laws and normativity uh, and what's the role of love and all of that has been something that has been, um, yeah, something that I've I've thought a lot about. Uh, I think I've grown. I've tried to sort of synthesize some of the things that I've just picked up, like having grown up in the Reformed tradition um, with maybe some more conscious um, critical thinking about these issues. And so... Yeah, so I would say that's one of the ideas that I encountered. I think for me, from Jimmo's class, when he talks about, or he tells stories about people that he's worked with in therapy and how the simplest things in, in conversations can, can totally open someone's eyes and realize 
a certain love that is in the world and or it's just in between two people where he'll recognize something in what they're saying or he'll just say something and then all of a sudden they'll like break down or have a complete breakthrough just by acknowledging what they're saying or hearing hearing or listening it's amazing how many people don't get heard or listened to ever so when they have the opportunity to to talk to someone or for them someone to actually listen to them is is pretty amazing for me the ideas that i was exposed to in the biblical foundations class uh, were really eye-opening and at times it provoked in me some kind of uh, anxiety like oh, <laughs> oh uh, this is different from my faith background sometimes oh am I stretching it too far but it was a uh, uh, good shaking um, so it gave me a chance to look at myself and ask myself uh, why do I have these reactions where do I react most strongly and then just gave me a good shaking um, of the presuppositions that I had and gave me a really, like as the name Biblical Foundations, it gave me the new foundations to think of the Bible and, and God and everything in a more flexible and yet um, safeguarded way. So things that I read in Nick's class gave me that chance to see myself more self-critically. So I really appreciated it. A staple of everyday life here at ICS is the rhythm of classes. Every week, senior and junior members gather to discuss shared texts and explore various philosophical, theological, and historical themes together. The classroom is where studying at ICS most obviously becomes a communal project. For this segment, we're attempting to bridge the divide between the classroom and life, so we're inviting our senior members to introduce us to some of their current and upcoming courses. I'm Gideon Strauss, Academic Dean and Professor of Worldview Studies at ICS. Today, I'm joined remotely one last time by our Professor of the History of Philosophy, Bob Sweetman, for the final part of our crash course in Reformational Philosophy. Hi, Bob. Hi. Reformational Philosophy is one of the introductory courses every student takes at ICS. So far in this series, inspired by that course, we've considered the history and some of the key figures in this tradition like Abraham Kuyper, Hermann Duerweert, Dirk Wallenhoven, and others. Among other things, we've talked about Kuyper on principled pluralism and sphere sovereignty and Duerweert on religious ground motives. Last time, in particular, we focused on what a distinctly reformational ontology looks like, that is, as a way of naming the hows of existence, how we are and how the world is. Today, we're shifting to a closely related topic, epistemology. So, Bob, how would you have explained the word epistemology to 15-year-old Gideon, innocent as he was of philosophical jargon? Um, I would say that it, uh, epistemology has to do with knowing. But see, um, I, I, 
um, there's a distinction between epistemology and other um, subsets of, of knowing and so on. But I would say, I suppose to the 15-year-old that uh, it's a way of talking about and accounting for how we uh, know. Yeah, yeah, I yeah, I really like that accounting for how we know. So, to to continue our conversation against that explanation's background. So, we're talking about epistemology, we're talking about accounting for how we know. My understanding of Herman Duebier's project is that he wants to argue that scholarship, and, and in particular philosophy, appropriately starts out not as autonomous, independent human reasoning, but rather starts out as responsive human reasoning from within the embrace of God's love. So Bob, what do I understand correctly and misunderstand about Duebert's epistemology if I say that? Oh, I think that's a really, really good summary from the circle of the moon, for sure. I mean, you're trying to get <laughs> get at the whole. And it seems to me that when one is thinking about how Duebert accounts for knowledge, you'd have to ask, what is it about knowing? Uh, that he's particularly interested in, and that is uh, just as reality itself, uh, and, and, and anal his analysis of reality itself opens up to the, the mystery of our being related to uh, a creator God, um, the same is true uh, of our knowing, that the deepest dimension of our knowing is tied up in um, our relationship to our creator and redeemer and enabler. And so that religious relationship is something that uh, that frames uh, the whole of our knowing and is always already present and operative in all of our knowing. So there is a kind of whole part thing going on. So when he talks about philosophy and any other theoretical or scholarly uh, pursuit, um, he's talking about a part of our uh, knowing operation, which has to be placed in the context of the whole, and that context is, as it were, revealed um, in the sort of religious root uh, of our lives as creatures. Yeah, I like that. That that, that reminds me of something that I that I read in preparation for for this session, in addressing what he calls the epistemological problem in his massive new critique of theoretical thought. Duvet writes this, he writes, the religious meaning of the created world binds the true knowledge of the cosmos to true self-knowledge and the latter to the true knowledge of God. So how would you say, Bob, does this sentence from Duvet illuminate his approach to the relationship between theology, ontology, and epistemology? I would replace theology with spirituality and then say, okay, the relationship of spirituality to ontology and epistemology. And then uh, I would have to say um, that uh, ontology and epistemology, the, the logos that's part of the second half of both words, uh, indicates that you're dealing with something theoretical. And uh, the, the world that is open to uh, description by theory for Dolivit uh, is a world that uh, is bounded by time and that theory uh, exposes as a world that is uh, very, very and irreducibly complex and 
Uh, that, of course, only represents a part of reality. What's available to us because it's within the frame of time is only a part of reality, and it's a part of reality that is always already posterior to the, the root unity of our lives, which is uh, what he calls the heart, uh, which is our existence in relation to, to God or to a divine pretender. Um, and it's, it's this root unity that constitutes, if you will, the, the horizon of the whole. And it's, it's religious and it's prior to our theoretical activity. So, unless I'm mistaken, this, this move that Duebert makes is a fundamental move. It's a basic shift away from a positioning of our human capacity for knowing as the starting point and rather seeing our human capacity of knowing as, as wrapped into something bigger. You know, not that the very first starting point is the capacity to know that we're knowing, to know that we're doubting, but instead we start out from this other place, this heart place. Now, what here does Duerweert mean when he talks about the heart as a starting point uh, rather than our capacity to know things? Well, one thing he's doing is picking up on biblical metaphorics, uh, particularly in the Hebrew scriptures where um, organs are used as a synecdoche for the human person as a whole. So uh, heart is the most often used, and therefore heart comes to uh, have that kind of a role uh, in his uh, understanding of the human person as well. But from a philosophical point of view, what you can say is that when we engage in theory, we look at a world that's irreducibly complex, where differences go all the way down uh, and cannot be, as it were, reduced to unity within theory. But by acknowledging that theory is always already a kind of second approach to the world, not a first approach, we are prepared uh, to look beyond the theoretical horizon for a kind of unity that allows for these differences that theoretically go all the way down, yet to exist with respect to each other in a coherent way so that the world that theory is able to call forth and examine is a world that hangs together and hence can lead to understanding. So, okay, so in other words, what is prior to theory is also the locus, you might say, of the unity that the coherence of the world theory investigates is grounded in. And that unity, David understands as the root unity of a person, so each individual, but also of humanity as a kind, and indeed, uh, on a third level, of the cosmos as a whole, and that unity uh, comes to be associated personally in the heart. Uh, and when it comes to humanity as a whole, its root in Jesus Christ, and with the cosmos as a whole, Jesus Christ as well as the mediator between uh, God and creature. So, Bob, these different unities of which you speak, right? So, our unity as whole persons. So as a whole person, I am a whole, I am all Gideon, you know, I'm not a mind and a body or a soul and a body, I'm a, I'm a whole, and I'm a whole in a sense because of that relatedness to, to God. 
humanity is a, a whole in a particular way. The cosmos is whole or integrally connected. And what makes for that whole is not something necessarily independently internal to me or humanity or the created world, but rather our, that unity is to be found in our belovedness, is to be found in the fact that we are beloved of God. And so the love of God in Christ is what holds each of these unities together. Would that be a, a fair rearticulation of what you've said? Yes. So Bob, part of what I'm hearing you say is that there is this uh, powerful emphasis on a certain kind of unity that emerges in Dwevier's epistemology. So a, a unity of, of the cosmos, a unity of the human person, a unity of humanity. But this contrasts to the kind of celebration of diversities that we encountered in our previous episode when we talked about Dwevier's ontology. And so what do you make of these two parts of, of what we find in, in Dwebir, the, the sets of unities and then the this, this celebration of diversity. Well, first, I think we need to remember that uh, for Dwebir, the celebration of diversity is never uh, apart from uh, a sense of the integrality of uh, complexity. So it's, it's not just a complexity that atomizes, but it's a complexity that is always coherent. Uh, so there's sphere sovereignty, but sphere sovereignty in a context of sphere universality, to use the terms of Doiviet. So theory is never about a world that is atomized uh, and hence can be broken apart into uh, disciplinary units that have nothing to do with each other, but rather that uh, there is a presumed whole uh, that grounds the coherence that we see in the connections we see uh, between disciplines, you know, that the world that the disciplines examine is a world that hangs together and can be understood as far as it goes. Yeah, yeah. I want to move forward in a moment towards uh, situating Dwevier's epistemology a little bit within the historical context within which he's developed that, and of course the broader context of, of Western philosophy. Before uh, we go there, uh, perhaps just to footnote two, two terms and to ask you to um, kind of give your, um, your dictionary definitions of these two terms. And the one would be religion and the other would be theory. So in, in this kind of conversation, you know, if, if someone like the, you know, the very influential Dwevian philosopher, certainly influential for folk at the Institute of Christian Studies, H. Evan Runner, when, when Runner would say as a little slogan, you know, all of life is religion, what does religion mean there? And when Dwevia talks about theory, uh, uh, what does theory mean there? Uh, okay, uh, so we'll, we'll start with religion. Uh, Dwevian understands in a, in a very re, uh, reformed way uh, that covenant is a kind of privileged term to get at the mystery of our being related to God. We are in a covenant with God. And our side of the covenant of that relation is uh, what uh, Doivit calls religion. So everything that we do and are, we do and are in relation to God. And 
Hence, we do and are in a religious way or as religion. And then with theory, of course, uh, when we're engaged in theory, we're trying to understand the world, but we're trying to understand the world in a particular way. That is to say, with a particular kind of discipline and focus that is not ordinary. So in Doivet's understanding, our ordinary lives are lives in which we participate in uh, the full panoply of modes of existence. You know, we are aesthetic, we are social, we are economic, we are physical, we, are, we move, and so on and so forth. And we don't view ourselves as it were over and against that, but rather as participant within. In theory, we gain a certain purchase on uh, our existence and a certain understanding by, and this is Doivet's way of putting it, by, uh, as it were, juxtaposing ourselves as logical beings. We, we oppose ourselves as logically active to the, the world. And when we do that, uh, what happens is, is we become aware of the difference in the various hows or the various ways in which we exist in the world, and not just us, but every entity in the world. Uh, and that, of course, is n never to be able to uh, somehow encapsulate uh, everything there is about the existence of this creature or that creature or this state of affairs and that state of affairs, this relation or that relation. In other words, all creatures are and remain mysteries, but it does allow us to examine uh, and understand things at least at, in their temporal existence. Yeah, yeah. So I'm I'm wondering if if you could say a little bit about how Duevert was uh, received in his own time as an interlocutor with these various traditions. Uh, yes, uh, the he was definitely a fierce critic of what you might call uh, ne the neo-scholastic revival of the 19th century. Um, but in this, he found Catholic interlocutors who were extremely sympathetic to him, and they were those interlocutors who were, like Doivet himself, uh, insistent that uh, the Christian community, uh, in its theological theorizations, has to do a much better job of uh, listening to and hearing what modern philosophy has said since, well, really since Kant. So it was uh, the Jesuit tradition around uh, Louvain uh, and uh, emanating out of Louvain uh, that gave rise to La Nouvelle Théologie, where he found interlocutors that were really, really uh, very positive about what he was doing, uh, and it changed him. Uh, so while uh, when the, the philosophy of the cosmonomic idea, which was the first edition, you might say, of what became the new critique in the late 50s, uh, and early 60s. Um, so in the 30s, when it first came out, the neo-scholastic establishment at the Catholic University in Nijmegen really did pay attention, uh, particularly uh, uh, Professor Roberts, R-O-B-B-E-R-S, uh, and they had quite an exchange, you know, until World War II. And, uh, you know, and it was a very critical, antithetical uh interchange, but in, I think in the early 60s, um, there was a thesis written at Louvain 
by a Jesuit that was uh, on Dolivit, and it was very, very positive. And that changed Dolivit. He started to no longer speak about Calvinistic philosophy, which was the habit, referring to Reformation mm. philosophy as Calvinistic until then. And after that, he starts talking about Christian philosophy. And you see him uh, particularly inter interacting with this Jesuit strain of thought you know, much, much more positively. And, and I would say that the critique of a certain way of understanding the, the priority of theory that is intrinsic to modern philosophy that you see in existentialism uh, is something that you also saw among the great Catholic theologians of the post-war era, uh, people like Karl Rahner, whom uh, George Vandervelde did his thesis on and uh, was a primary interlocutor of. Bernard Lonergan, uh, that's so important at uh, Regis College in the Toronto School of Theology. Hans Urs von Balthasar, who's, you know, Mr. Hot Button uh, Aesthetic the Theology. Uh, again, uh, very, very influenced by Heidegger's existentialist critique. Yeah, I mean, Dolivian was the Protestant equivalent of this. And even with Lonergan, you'd have to say, shares a sense that if uh, the theological tradition doesn't engage in something like a transcendental critique of its own method, um, it remains vulnerable to modernity. Yeah, I think that that brings us to the concluding question of this whole series of conversations that you and I have had, Bob, the, the recognition that these philosophical approaches are fragile in the world as it is, and it's fragile against the questions raised in the context of modernity and to the extent that one can ask of any Christian philosophy, you know, when all is said and done, how does this matter? Why should all of this not just gather dust on antiquarian bookstore shelves? Why does this matter to someone doing scholarship like yourself right now here in the in the early part of the 21st century well uh maybe i can start by referring to a distinction that ron kuyper is one of our colleagues uh makes on the basis of his uh knowledge of the work of uh, charles taylor and that is that in the post-war era we've moved from a sense of our lives as human beings together that is rooted in uh, and grounded in authority to one that is grounded in authenticity. So in other words, uh, we seek for not authorized life, but authentic life. Authenticity and integrity uh, really go together. So the cultural moment is one in which uh, one seeks for uh, integral living and existence, and that that becomes the ground and the goal of our existence in our culture in this time, whether we're Christians or not. But for Christians, surely that ground of authenticity uh, has to have something to do with uh, the Christ, with the scriptures, with the life of faith, uh, and so on and so forth. Um, and uh, as something that precedes and therefore suffuses uh, the entirety of our lives, particularly for those of us who are, as it were, called uh, to theoretical work, our theoretical lives. And it seems to me that what you have in the Reformational tradition is a particularly powerful account 
of how that authenticity is possible within uh, the theoretical endeavor uh, and the theoretical contribution, if you will, to our communal existence. And Ovid himself, I mean, his career spans the, the beginning of the turn, you might say, from uh, authority to authenticity. So how, how comfortable he would be with, you know, the, the contemporary context, uh, you know, I'm not sure. But it strikes me that his sense of the necessity of living life in the present and responding to what is on the plate of people in the present and doing so with respect in other words a sense that um no matter it, how you know how bad we might be uh, at uh, reading things and so on and so forth there's only so far you can go wrong because the creation itself will impinge your capacity to uh, make your way out of the fairway and deeply into the giggly weeds so you need to be listening to people and to say, even though I find I will have to resist you at some point, I need to know what it is you see in God's world. Um, that, it strikes me, is, uh, can be uh, understood in, the, in terms of the uh, society of authority uh, that I think Dovid and Bonhoeven were still very comfortable with, but also uh, uh, continues to be a, a valid impulse. Uh, in an age of authenticity. And that brings us to our final segment, What's Your Pleasure? This is where we get to kick off our shoes and talk about the other things we do for fun. The movies and television shows we're watching, the sports and games we play, the food and drink we make and enjoy, the music we listen to, and so on. So, Mark, what is your pleasure? So, um, on Friday, there was a surprise announcement by one of my favorite artists, Laura Marling, mm. um, that she was she had finished her album, her new album. It had been it's been about three years since she released an album, and. She had decided not to wait any longer and just release it because people needed stuff to do um, <laughs> and to listen to during our coronavirus times. Mm -hmm. So on Friday, she released her new album called Song for Our Daughter. And it comes after the birth of her daughter. And it's has such a, I don't know, probably... Our listeners haven't been following the career of Laura Marling. I mean, some may have. But <laughs> maybe they have. Who knows? Um, but if you haven't been, um, basically, she's around the age that Danielle and I are. So 29. <laughs> I'm spilling and all my secrets here. She, yeah, no secrets. No secrets. <laughs> but I'm an open book. And <laughs> I'm forcing Danielle to be. <laughs> and she already has five studio albums out. Uh, I think five, maybe six. I thought you were going to say she has five children. No, no, only one child. Still beating us on that score, though. True. But she's also beating us on studio albums released. And her first one, she was pretty young. I think she was 18 or 19. And she's a great songwriter. Mm -hmm. um, but there is always this like anger, this like F you to her lyrics and to the tone. I, once saw, I, I saw her once 
at the the Phoenix, which is um, a concert venue in Toronto, mm-hmm. um, probably seven years ago, and I could, was struck by the like anger mm-hmm. um, that her performance had. It it wasn't like an explicit anger, but it was like very um, palpable mm-hmm. the anger um, and. Her new album, and most of her albums up until this point has been very angry, but her new album, Song for Our Daughter, like that edge is just like, it doesn't come out in the same way. And it's refreshing the lack of anger in Song for Our Daughter. And the the music is so much warmer, Mm -hmm. even though it's got a lot of energy, it's so much warmer than it was. And one of the lines really gets me. It's called Only the Strong. She sings, just struggling to figure out how only... Only the strong can survive. Hope that you can change my mind. I had to leave this crying all behind. I hope that you don't think that I'm unkind. It's just somebody told me only the strong can survive, mm-hmm. which is pretty harrowing. Uh, thinking about her talk, like speaking to her daughter and thinking about like how she wants her to be kind um, and warm. But like has learned, but her life doesn't represent that. Her life represents that only the strong survive, and that's kind of what she's told. But a beautiful at the same time. So mm. I'm gonna have to listen to this album now. I feel like that's gonna wreck me. <laughs> you will, especially that song. Yeah, it's quite something. Yeah, but the whole album's really, really good. Hmm. I've only come across Laura Marling kind of by like vicariously by way of other people like listening to her and me kind of like seeing that they're listening to her or like I've kind of stumbled upon a song or two of hers in Mm. uh, kind of like on Spotify or whatever, where they radio, it'll just kind of come up in relation to another artist. What I have heard from her, I I do like, but I admit I have not heard a lot. So this might be a good way, good way in. I highly recommend. Um, I feel like my, my pleasure is also tangentially related to having children, even though I don't have children. So, yeah, a bit of background information, I guess. I nannied for a few years, actually, uh, for two different families, one who's a family of my own. Then for a year, I nannied for a family in France. And part of what I did was, like, teaching the children uh, English. Um, And I grew very close to them. I love this family dearly. I consider them basically my, like, I have adopted them as my own family. So I kind of consider these, you know, three children that I nannied kind of like children of my own in a way. Um, but one of the things that we did fairly regularly uh, was I would read stories to them. And uh, English stories, language acquisition, I think, comes best in the context of, well, like conversation, but also things like music and movies and stories and things. So because that's how you learn how people actually use words so we would read just kind of like children's books and stuff. We would read like Winnie the Pooh and like Paddington Bear. So this became like a big part of our our time together. I think they made me read a French book one time, but then they laughed at me the whole time because like it made me re-say words that I said funny. So we only did that one time. <laughs> but so that was, I mean, gosh, when was that? That was like five years ago. And like I'm still in touch with them and you know, quarantine times, like they, as well as anyone, because France is under like complete lockdown, are kind of all home. So I had the idea that I would start reading to them again. So Hmm. I've 
uh, started uh, trying to, anyway, like record myself reading to them. And they have requested uh, To Kill a Mockingbird, which as I'm rereading it is like, hmm, oh. this is a bit of a <laughs> not pick-me-up story as I'm rem I didn't remember that. So <laughs> trying to make sure they know. Uh, but they wanted it. But so anyway, all that long, long story to say that my pleasure I've realized for this uh, recent amount of time has been uh, rediscovering just how much I love like reading aloud, actually, like mm. reading stories to people is actually I, I don't know what it is. It's just very, it's a very comforting thing. And I was never like read to as a child, really. So it's not like a nostalgia thing for myself, but like I have discovered that the act of reading to people has been bringing me a lot of pleasure and has in the past. So just like rediscovering that has been, has been kind of nice. So that's my, that's my pleasure for the week. That's it for our show this week. And that's it for this introductory series on reformational philosophy. Thanks for joining us. We're going to continue recording Critical Faith throughout the summer, so stick with us to see what's next. If you like, you can revisit past episodes and share this series with your friends through your favorite podcast app or on the homepage of our website at icscanada.edu. If you'd like to know more about the Center for Philosophy, Religion, and Social Ethics and the Institute for Christian Studies, you can find more information on that same website. If anything from this week's show piqued your interest, you can also email us at criticalfaith at icscanada.edu. You can also find us on Twitter. You can follow me as at Mark Standish. You can follow Danielle as at Beware the Yeti. You can follow Gideon as at Gideon Strauss. And you can also follow ICS as at INSCHR. And from the heart of ICS, thank you all for listening. This has been Critical Faith. If you like what you heard, you can subscribe to us on iTunes, follow along with us on Spotify, or continue to find us on your podcast app of choice. Remember, following and reviewing the podcast helps people find us and keeps us on their radar. Most importantly, tell your friends. <laughs>